Welcome to the Public Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm Dan DiPiero, musician and lecturer of Comparative Studies at The Ohio State University. This is Episode 3, Embodied Technologies. This episode, my guest is Dr. Rebecca Gibson, an independent scholar whose published works include Desire in the Age of Robots and AI, an Investigation in Science Fiction and Fact, and The Corseted Skeleton, a Bioarchaeology of Binding, both out from Palgrave Macmillan, as well as Gender, Supernatural Beings, and the Liminality of Death, Monstrous Males, Fatal Females, out from Lexington Books in 2021. Rebecca Gibson holds a PhD in anthropology from American University, and when not writing or teaching, can be found reading mystery novels amidst a pile of stuffed animals. On this episode, we'll be talking about the first two books uh, that I mentioned in Rebecca's bio, Desire in the Age of Robots and AI, and The Corseted Skeleton. And as you'll hear in the conversation, there's a certain overall methodological perspective that informs her approach to both of these topics, which might at first seem like an unlikely pair. I'll let you hear that perspective in her own words. But additionally, what stuck out to me in this interview was how both of these topics illustrate in really uncompromising and clear terms the ways in which objects entangle themselves deeply into our bodies, our emotional lives, or even our identities. From clothing to human-cyborg relations, Dr. Gibson's work illustrates the extent to which what we understand as human is itself a cultural construction or a moving target sketched in relief against other concepts that are understood to be non-human. While such a distinction might be helpful in terms of generating shared understanding of ourselves in relation to the world, it is also one that constantly breaks down under closer scrutiny. In reality, there can be no clean separation between human and object when certain objects become central to how we operate in the world, how we move about or present ourselves or love one another. Dr. Rebecca Gibson, thanks so much for doing this. And I was hoping we could start out with you just sort of introducing yourself to everybody um, and saying a bit about how you um, found your way into the research that you are currently involved in. Sure. So I'm a biological anthropologist. I got my undergrad at Indiana University South Bend with a double major in history and philosophy and a triple minor in women's studies, European studies, and anthropology. I did my master's degree at Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts, where I got a joint MA in gender studies and anthropology. And I did my PhD at American University in Washington, DC, where I got a PhD in anthropology. My research interests are really sort of tri-dimensional for my PhD research. 
I started looking at um, skeletons and how they were affected by women's corsets when women wore corsets. And this was really something that's fascinated me ever since I was an undergrad. We have all of these ideas about who is using clothing and how they're using clothing and what the effects are, but we have very little data on the facts. So I wanted to go gather that data. Um, thankfully, one does not have to choose a single research interest in one's life. So my secondary research interest is human-robot sexual interactions, in, specifically in science fiction. I wrote a book um, on the Blade Runner mythos, so the, the uh, novella Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and then the two Blade Runner movies. And I've actually just floated the idea to my editor about doing a book about the fourth Matrix movie. Well, all of the Matrix movies, but now that the fourth one's coming out specifically, it's going to include that. And then my third research interest is gender and the supernatural. Basically, what happens to gender when we die? We know it's an internal, intimate part of us, but we also have a lot of stereotypes that go around it, like Frankenstein is male, or vampires are sexy, or you know, all of this stuff. So where does gender go when you die? That's fascinating, and I would love to... Uh, pick your brain about the matrix for a couple of hours. So maybe we can wind our way back to that uh, topic, but I'm just as excited as everybody else about the new trailer. So yeah. um, that's great. That's great. And it actually really sort of nicely transitions us into talking about um, the corseted skeleton, which I think is what I'd like to start with. And I, I guess what I'll say is like, um, one of the things I'm trying to do with this show is find the sweet spot where specialists and non-specialists can listen to these discussions and get something interesting out of it. So could you do me a favor and like back all the way up for people who might not be as familiar? Um, what do, are you talking about when you refer to corseting? And um, what are you trying to do with this book that maybe differs from other ways that people have approached this topic in the past? Sure. So if people have seen corseting in the wild today, it probably came in the form of waste training or historical era movies. So anybody who's seen, um, oh God, what's a good, all of my movie references are like 20 years old at this point, except for the Matrix movies which is also 20 years old. Um, but the Kardashians, Kardashians, sorry. Ah, oh, we're not talking Star Trek, we're talking popular culture. The Kardashians um, use waist trainers. They use uh, sort of these fitted garments with hooks and they put them around their waists and make their waists a specific shape. So in the late 1600s, um, women's clothing specifically, was meant to take on a very particular shape. And that shape in that time was much more conical than most of the corsets I'm looking at. But a corset is really just a way to shape a garment. It has, um, it has various boning structures in it, so things that make it stiffer, and it has whatever shape the person is meant to be in. Usually we look at it as sort of hourglass shapes. So I, um, look specifically at the 1700s through 1900s, 
And although corsets changed a lot over that time period, they didn't change in ways that were significant to my research. Um, and they didn't change in ways that were specific to our popular culture understanding of it. Um, God, I want to say Downton Abbey, if people have seen Downton Abbey, except they were past the time of corseting. They were like early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, Age of Innocence is one that has a lot of corsets in them. Oh, Bridgerton. Bridgerton, the women have corsets. There we go. So, um, you look at the things that we see in popular culture, and you look at the ways that corsets are represented. They're represented as restrictive, as violent, as uh, painful, as causing fainting. And I wanted to interrogate that. I, I wanted to see why we look at it that way, why we think of these things as, first of all, as being only for women. Men wore corsets too. Um, and then also, like, what our assumptions are, what assumptions of ours are correct, what are not correct, and whether or not we could change that popular culture narrative. So with the corseted skeleton, I sort of wanted to marry those two pieces, the, the on the ground factual evidence with our popular culture representation of what women wore during the time and why and how they were wearing them. I have a couple follow-up questions. Um, could you talk about how you went about doing this research? I still haven't heard very much about this term bioarchaeology in terms of, you know, a robust uh, explanation of the methodology there. So maybe that would be a good place to start. Yeah, of course. So bioarchaeology is a term that's used when we're doing the study of artifacts in relation to skeletal material. And what I did to go um, research that was I found various collections of skeletal material that would allow me to come in and examine their collections, measure them, um, you know, perform experimentation on them. And of course, these are human bodies that we're talking about. And uh, anthropology in general and bioarchaeology specifically are sort of in this upheaval about what is correct to do with human bodies, specifically ones that haven't consented to being science subjects. Um, so first and foremost, I tried to be extremely careful, extremely respectful to sort of give the women I was looking at back some of their identity if I could, because we don't want to see them as just research subjects. Um, they're they didn't ask for this and they're, they're bones in a box and they can still tell us a lot of interesting things scientifically, but we want to be mindful of their humanity at the same time. So I went and um, researched in these skeletal collections and I was specifically looking at the rib cage and the spinal column. These are the two places that are most likely to show damage or deformation from wearing the corset because it goes around the waist and it pulls and constricts and um, forms the waist. So what I did was I, um, I looked at the diameter of and the circumference of the rib cages at very specific points. And I took measurements and we all can tell just based on what we look like 
that in general, the human body is wider than it is deep. So what I was looking for was anything that contradicted that, anything that showed more of a circularization, anything that showed sort of an abnormal presentation. And that is in fact what I found um, in a skeletal collection that I know would have necessarily been corseted uh, because they were in London and they, um, they wore London fashions and everything. Uh, to a woman, they were all much rounder than I was expecting to find if I was looking at uncorseted women. Yeah, such a great example of something that we talk about in the abstract a lot, which is, you know, the way that objects sort of entangle themselves in our bodies in, you know, help to constitute, you know, who we are um, physically, emotionally, otherwise. And now you have this cultural artifact that actually changes your sort of physiognomy is a really incredibly clear illustration of, of how powerful objects can be. What do you, I guess, um, make of that? Like you mentioned upfront that you were interested in interrogating the significance or the way that we talk about these objects. And, you know, I think to anyone listening who hears that you did in fact find what we could call deformations in the skeleton, I guess, this does sound potentially like, you know, the cruel and um, patriarchal tool that we are often used to thinking about it as. So maybe that's not your take on it, but, but what is your take on it? So that is a fantastic question because it really speaks to how we center our own experiences as being good or right or, um, you know, the, the pinnacle of what we are meant to be doing. But we do the same thing to our own faces. We corset our faces in the form of orthodontic braces. Um, my teeth are very crooked. For some reason, my parents were never uh, were never told that I should get braces. But if I had gone to a different dentist, probably they would have. And this was uh, 20, 25 years ago now. Um, and braces were all the rage when I was in high school. And I never got them. But my smile is an abnormality in today's culture. Most of the people around me had braces when they were younger and they've got perfectly straight teeth and usually pretty white teeth too. We're very much into that. So when we look at a practice that changes the skeleton in such a dramatic fashion, we need to resolve those value judgments or withhold those value judgments until we listen to the people who have had that practice performed on them. And so in a lot of cases, we have not been listening to the people. Uh, not a lot of writing has come down directly from women who wore corsets. And the writing that has come down from them is very much skewed in terms of two different narratives, one of which is the, um, I love my corset, I'm perfectly happy with it, here is how it benefits me, and I love the way it makes me look, and it feels um, wonderful. And then the other perspective is that of sort of corset abolitionists. The, um, the, they're part of the temperance movement, why can't I remember what they're called? The dress reform movement, there we go, um, who, did who wanted to do away with corsets for health 
But we also, in a lot of cases, mistake that for thinking that the health aspect was what the corset itself was doing to the skeletal structure. When in reality, what they were talking about is the temperature zones of the body. They thought the corset was making the body too hot and that having heavy garments um, dangling from the corset, a lot of skirts and petticoats were meant to be tied on top of the corset. Having the heavy garments put on top of the corset and dangling from it was creating too much of a burden on the woman's waist. So what they were advocating for wasn't a complete removal of the corset, but a change into a more um, sustainable way of wearing it. So we had these two opposing um, dialogues. And because of the way that women were, were sort of pushing themselves into the popular discourse at the time, a lot of the dialogue is done in hyperbole. So you see really gushing anonymous letters to newspapers and magazines. You don't see a lot of, you know, straight factual letters to friends either complaining about or being happy about their new corset. You see a lot of that, um, that very hyperbolic discourse. And the difficulty there comes in with, um, do we believe it or do we just assume that this is how they wanted to be perceived and maybe we need to take it with a grain of salt? So the ability to sort of combine the physical um, evidence with that textual discussion is really what I wanted to use the corseted skeleton for. Yeah, great. So that's the other huge part of your method is this sort of discourse analysis that pairs, yeah, with what you found in the, not sure what to call it. it it's not an archive if we're talking about bones, right? Uh, no, a uh, uh, skeletal collection. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank yep. you. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I love the way that you started this whole discussion by bringing up the Kardashians. Um, what do you think studying corsets, corset discourse, corset culture can tell us about contemporary women's subjectivity, clothing choices? I mean, what is the relation here between what you found in your study and, you know, our, our sort of contemporary discourse around women's clothing? What this adds to that particular discourse is a lot of um, missing discussion about agency, about what women want to do with their own bodies. We have fashions that come in and out every decade or so, and to some extent, most people follow the current fashion, even if for no other reason than it's what you can find on the shelves. Like you have to, uh, you have to, to some degree, buy what is out there to be bought. But within those choices, there is a lot of nuance in how things are made, how the person who bought them uses them, what they're trying to express with them. And we don't give that idea of individual choice and agency enough attention. Um, we had a huge, uh, I, don't, I honestly don't know if you're old enough to remember this, <laughs> but the 80s was a weird, weird time for clothing. 
So we had all of these, you know, uh, bright neons and we had workout clothing, and we had hair permanence and we had uh, pointy toed shoes, although maybe that was more 90s than it was 80s. And to some extent, you had to buy what was there. But at the same time, there were ways of choosing to dress yourself within those options that either went counterculture or, you know, if you went barefoot instead of wearing the five inch heels with the pointy toes, you were making a statement. So the way that women dress themselves both back in the 1800s and 1900s, uh, sorry, 1700s and 1800s and today has that same sort of agency wrapped into it. We ascribe a lot to vanity, but we don't look very much at what people are actually trying to say with their clothing. And then, of course, you have the issue of um, looking at the overarching patriarchy and acknowledging its presence and its influence, because obviously there are both of those things, but still understanding the agency as a part of that. Even if your choices are restricted, you still have choices that you can make. Even if somebody is going to perceive you a certain way, their perceptions are not necessarily your responsibility. Um, you can have the choice, and specifically with the women that I looked at in my, in my course in book, you can have the choice to tight lace or not. You can have the choice to um, buy the newest fashions or not. You can have that choice and make that within whatever system you're you're working in. And just as just then as now, most of the choices and the opinions and the trends were started and passed down by women themselves. Now we could go all day about whether or not that's internalized patriarchy or whether it's counterculture, but the fact that women were actively making these choices is not something that gets very much attention. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, my my temptation in upon hearing that is, I guess where my head goes is like it's it's still it still illustrates the extent to which concern about the body um or the way that the body appears in public is set is central to how people understand subjectivity how they understand themselves how they want to present themselves whether that's something they're doing as an expression of agency or something that they're being subjected to is like the gaze of other people there's still so much emphasis on physical appearance as the core of subjectivity. And I'm wondering, just to go back to something that you said earlier, I'm wondering about it, first of all, if you agree with my assessment oh, casu yeah. ca casually. <laughs> yep. And secondly, is that, do you think that that holds as true for men at the time? So another way of asking this would be, why haven't we paid attention to the fact that men also wore corsets or or um, is it that male subjectivity is somehow less tightly sutured to questions about the body and the presentation of the body or is there sort of an equivalence there and it's just for cultural reasons that we have not paid attention to that equivalence? So there are a couple of different answers there, one of which is the practice of male corseting was much, much, much more limited. Um, women were the predominant customers and the predominant um, users of corsets. 
And I am specifically using the binary here because this is how the people at the time would have used. Uh, there was there was basically there were non-binary and trans people at the time, of course, but they were not um, a publicly recognized category. So women were predominantly the customers, and men's clothing was relatively like they had fashions too and things went in and out of style including different ways to tie your cravats and all of that but their the pieces of their clothing stayed relatively the same throughout this period of time with you know slight variations in cut or tying or um you know some colors added to it but it's a very bland time for men unfortunately <laughs> So for my time period, at least, the de-emphasis on the male clothing was seen as part of that cultural um, understanding. Women were meant to, to know and to care about fashion and, you know, to keep up with the styles and everything. Men could have a very good suit and something that they would work in, and that would be perfectly fine. Um, but in general, I think that um, that it, it does come down to this idea that the different genders have different social cares, different social responsibilities, um, which is, of course, not true at all. <laughs> Anybody can care about anything or want to participate in fashion or enjoy flashy colors and anything. And a lot of what we do when we have these types of trends is we try to squash that under the trend itself. Um, it doesn't it doesn't work necessarily, but that is is the attempt. And we're still so incredibly wrapped up in this idea of gender essentialism that we we do put much more emphasis on female clothing than on male clothing. And in fact, like we could talk about the the high heel trend. Um, which started in France as male clothing in the 1700s. And then once, once it sort of spread across the world, stopped being a male thing because it got too fancy and too, um, too widespread and too popular. And if it was popular, it had to be a female thing. That's so interesting. Yeah, back in the high-low distinction where popular culture is denigrated in some way and therefore feminine. Yep. Um, that's great. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to say about this project before I ask you about something different? Actually, yes, because I'm I'm writing a whole new book on it. Uh, awesome. So one of, one of my sources is Ludovico Falwell's 1908 textbook. Um, it's titled in French, of course, uh, The Corset Medicine, Hygiene and His Medicine, History and Hygiene. And um, it's awful. Uh, it's it's littered with medical inconsistencies. It is incredibly misogynistic. Um, he hated women. He didn't care about you if you were over the age of childbearing. If you were under 30, which is where he puts the cutoff for childbearing, uh, he wanted you out of the corset. He's, his own prejudices are just everywhere throughout this book. The book is 300 pages long. And... Um, it does a system by system breakdown of the body and what he says the corset does to it. So everything from the skeletal system to the breasts, to the pelvis, to the circulatory system and the digestive system and the 
uh, uterus and, and genital system. And um, most of the time when people use Ophala Wells book, they use the illustrations. Uh, part of this is um, sort of Anglo-centrism because it, it's in French, it's 300 pages of French. Um, nobody really wants to slog through 300 pages of French to see what the guy is actually saying. So everybody uses the pictures. The pictures are bad enough and I'll get back to that in a second, but they do support this idea that the, car that the course is harmful because this is what the book was meant to do. And so when people use the pictures, it's very easy to sort of cherry pick and illustrate the fact that the corset is harmful without looking any deeper. So you go into the text itself and the text is just dripping with misogyny and his hatred of women. Um, and so what I'm doing is I'm translating and annotating selected passages of the book, which will be published by Bloomsbury. And it's going to be full color. All of the illustrations that are currently in the book will make it into my book. And I'm going to use those annotations to um, really find out where he was coming from and sort of contextualize how we've been using him already. So let's go back to the illustrations for a second. One of the famous things about O'Fallowell's book is that he has x-rays of women in corsets. This should be a, a slam dunk. Right, you can show right in the x-ray exactly what's happening on the inside of the body. Of course it is there. You can see it because it's got metal. It's got the metal eyelets and everything. Everybody uses these. Um, they are in Valerie Steele's The Corset. They are in, I don't know if they're in David Kinsell's Fashion and Fetishism, um, but basically every cultural historian, every modern person who talks about corsets have, has used O'Fallowell. In one of the illustrations, the woman is demonstrably not inside the corset when she is being x-rayed. The corset is laid on top of her. You can see the boundaries of the corset, of the, the wires at the top and um, the, the busk going down the middle. You can see that not being where it is supposed to be in the wires at the top and the bottom are at least a good quarter of an inch on the page outside of the bounds of her body. Wow. She's not wearing the corset. Yeah. So that book should be forthcoming in late 2023. And I hope it will be sort of groundbreaking. Uh, this is this is not something anybody has done before. Yeah, something to look forward to for sure. Thank you. So I'm going to ask you about Another one of your books, which I just think makes such a wonderful pairing um, because it's sort of counterintuitive that these two books would be written by the same person. <laughs> um, you mentioned your disparate research interests at the at the top. And of course, having a couple of sort of wildly, apparently wildly unrelated interests is something that I can definitely relate to. But um, this book, Desire in the Age of Robots and AI, an investigation in science fiction and fact. Um, can you just start by maybe explaining what is the relationship between science fiction research and um, where you're coming from as a sort of anthropologist? How, how do these topics relate for you personally? So it's very 
much a continuation of my interest in biological anthropology. When we talk about robots, and specifically when we talk about cyborgs, or when we talk about um, anthropomorphic robots, robots that look like people, we're talking about ourselves. We're talking about things that look and act like ourselves and are either wholly or part machine. So where, what is human? Where does human begin and machine end? And how can we understand ourselves better by looking at this? And of course, throughout our history, the category of what works as human, what is designated as human has changed over and over and over again. We feel like in the 21st century that it's the static thing that we can look back through time and everything is, you know, we know what a human is, except for racism. You know, non-white, non-European people were thought of as inhuman for quite some time, even in the scientific community, or rather, especially in the scientific community. Women were thought of as non-human or as inhuman for a long time. So the central question to all of my work is this question of what does it mean to be human? Who are we? Why do we do the things we do? So when I first thought about talking about robot-human sexual interactions, I wanted to look at that. What does it mean to be desirable to a partner or to have desire for something? What does it mean if we are cyborgs, if we have things replaced in us? And you can now, um, you can think of cochlear implants or you can think of, um, there's like a, there's a, a contact lens that can register diabetes. Um, there are external kidneys for people who need continuous dialysis. There's all of these things that we can use to help us um, navigate our own medical crises. And at the same time, we don't consider those to be non-human because we are primarily still flesh and blood. But then how far does that go? How, where's, where's that point between human and cyborg and robot, is there a point? Do, do we, can we extend humanity to things that can look and talk and act and possibly even think like us, even if they're made of metal and wires? Yeah, one thing I always think about in, in this discussion is when I was in my MA program, uh, one of my teachers said like, you know, if, if you drop your laptop on the ground and the screen cracks, doesn't it hurt your stomach? Don't you like, you know, isn't that laptop already in some way a part of you so much so that you get physical pain if if it's if it's broken? So, but there's also a, a specifically um sort of relational or I, I don't know, can I say romantic aspect of what you're investigating here? Um, can you talk a little bit more in detail about the um, the sort of desire component uh, to this analysis? So when I started looking at um, sex robots, and we don't, we have a few on the market now. I say we euphemistically, I don't have any um, blood in that particular fight. But we have a few on the market now who are uh, able to respond to conversation. So they're conversational robots. 
Um, they don't, they're not articulated, so they don't walk or move around. They do uh, facial expressions and head tilts, though. And so what the manufacturers are finding and what I found through my research is that people are buying these robots or even the very realistic sex dolls, not with the intent to merely have sex with them. Um, it is primarily uh, people with penises who buy the dolls and they could, if they wanted, just buy body portions, so buttocks or uh, vagina or anything like that. Um, but they want the companionship. They want the romance. They want somebody to talk to, even if that person doesn't necessarily talk back or doesn't say things in the same cadence as they would expect from a fully human partner. We're social animals. We're programmed by nature and by nurture to want that connection and not everybody can find it with a flesh and blood person. I think we should try much harder to reserve judgment about that particular social issue. Um, that one gets a, a lot of teasing and a lot of um, nastiness thrown at it if you can't get a relationship. But, you know, if you want that connection, human beings are not the only source of it. Um, and you're right about the computers and about other inanimate objects. We anthropomorphize everything. I do apologize to my computer if I hurt it. Uh, I apologize to my stuffed animals if they fall off the bed. So. <laughs> yeah. And um, can you tie this in? Is there a case study or a reading, um, uh, for instance, around Blade Runner or uh, something similar that can help us to understand like the way that you investigate these questions in the book that you might like to talk about in a little bit of detail? What I look for is this sort of central idea about those questions about humanity. If I'm asking the same thing the movie is asking or the book is asking, then I can see what the author is giving us in terms of answers. And I can sort of reach down into, you know, various anthropological theories and that type of stuff and work to find a creative framework that really fits um, both the structure of the work I'm analyzing and my own training and my own intuition. Um, I'll be honest, I didn't, pick, I didn't pick Blade Runner specifically because it's a really great example. It is a really great example, but I wanted to do everything. <laughs> My editor specifically said, no, you have to narrow this down. Um, so Blade Runner has this great tripartite uh, way of organizing things. It's got the novella, it's got the two movies, it worked perfectly for analysis. And then each um, subsequent rewrite, each director put their own spin on it and added to the narrative in ways that it turns out um, fit very well in with the reality of the science that was being produced for the day. So while writing it, I got this understanding that um, science fiction is very discursive. Science fiction, uh, apart from all other fictions, is incredibly discursive. It drives us as much as we drive it because we have the ability to imagine technology that was never ever there and to recreate it both on the page and in real life. 
the the technology that's now in our smartphones is better than the original technology that we saw in Star Trek. And it's basically where it came from. Tablets and even flip phones, you know, before our, our recent smartphones are very Trekian. So it's this it's this dialogue between reality and fiction that I really love looking into. Well, I, I'll, I'll ask you the same thing as before. Um, is there anything uh, that you feel would be fun to talk about um, from this book that I haven't asked you about yet? Oh, heavens, let's see. Just a few things, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the best things I think about Blade Runner 2049 is the um, diversity of characters beyond that which we saw in the first movie. First movie was very much focused on almost recreating the book. Uh, it wasn't scene for scene, but it was really close in a lot of places. Blade Runner 2049 introduced us to a whole new realm of replicants. That's the uh, humanoid, like flesh and blood robots. They're very clearly robots, but we don't get into that distinction for some reason in the movies, um, but a whole new realm of them. And so what we see is a pair of robots called Joy, or a pair of replicants called Joy and Love. Uh, sorry, Joy is a hologram, not a replicant. Um, and so you have this new technology, this hologram technology that is being sort of squared off against the replicant technology in terms of what it can do to please people. And the other replicant, uh, Officer KD6-3.7, who is shortened to K for obvious reasons, um, has a hologram companion and she's, she's Joy, and she is eventually killed by the replicant Love. And just the symbolism of those names, I think I spent a very large portion of one of the chapters talking about the symbolism of the names and how their attributes are diametrically opposed as well. It was really fun. That sounds great. Of course, I will be linking all of this work uh, in the show notes when we uh, circulate the episode. So um, uh, I, I'm sure there are going to be some people who want to follow up and read more about that. That's great. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, my question about the matrix is uh, very straightforward. Uh, we don't have a lot of information yet, or at least commonly, unless you're in the know somehow. So what are you excited about? What are you thinking about? What kinds of issues do you imagine you want to sink your teeth into uh, with this um, trilogy that is now expanding itself. So I will be perfectly honest, when I first heard that there was going to be a new Matrix movie back in 2019, I think, I was like, oh, this is going to be horrible. <laughs> and I don't think I was alone in that particular assessment, um, just based on the two, the, the second and third movie. And then... I found out very shortly thereafter that David Mitchell had signed on to be one of the writers. David Mitchell wrote the book Cloud Atlas, and he also um, coordinated with the Wachowskis and with Tom Tykwer on uh, the movie Cloud Atlas. Tom Tykwer went on to coordinate with Wachowskis on Sensate. Cloud Atlas and Sensate, in addition to The Matrix, probably create the truest of the Wachowski's properties. Um, their, their voice and their vision come through throughout all of those. The 
trailer for Matrix Resurrections has the energy of the first movie. Now, there have been movies with great trailers that turned out to be crappy movies. We can take a look at the original Suicide Squad movie to see that one. Um, but I have hope. I have extreme hope with this movie based on the writing team, based on the fact that the Wachowskis have both transitioned and have acknowledged that the Matrix is a trans metaphor. Um, and so is Cloud Atlas, and so is Sensate. So we have this through line, and David Mitchell, I don't know if you know much about, or if your, your listenership knows much about him, but um, David Mitchell only writes in one universe. All of his books are in the same universe, and the books are very different from each other. So Cloud Atlas is six interlocking timelines, and like Slade House is a haunted house mystery, and... Uh, the most recent one, Utopia Avenue, um, follows the formation of a band in England in the 70s. So you have these different um, formats, but they're all in the same universe. So this canonically places the Matrix in that universe. And I am stoked. This is taking my favorite movie, Cloud Atlas, and it's putting it smack dab into the Matrix, which was like the thing when I was 18. And I'm, I'm excited. I'm just so excited. This is going to be great. That's wonderful. I'm, I share your optimism um, because I've, I've always felt that um, the franchise needed to be redeemed. You know, um, that, that first movie was, was such a, a watershed. And so I'm, I'm also excited to see, yeah, what, what can come out of number four. Um, that is the last question that I have planned for you. This was really wonderful. Um, thank you so much again for doing it. Of course. Thank you very much for having me. And that does it for this episode. Thanks to Dr. Gibson for a wonderful conversation, and I hope that you'll look forward to our next episode. In the meantime, definitely do get in touch with any feedback that you have. This podcast is produced by me, Dandy Piero. You can find a full list of episodes, contact info, and more at publicculturalstudies.wordpress.com. If you like the show, please rate and review it, tell your friends, and otherwise spread the word. If you really like the show, please consider a donation to help keep it running, or let me know if you're privy to any grants that might help fund what we're trying to do. I'm on Venmo at Dan DiPiero. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.